0: We're continuing with our study in in John's Gospel, and we're up to John chapter 7, verses 25 to 52. Um, I want to mention at the outset that there's a couple of verses which stand out from this passage, and I'm not going to major on them in the talk, but I just wanted to point them out because they're very arresting. Um, The first one is verse 43, and it simply says, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. It's perhaps one of the saddest verses in all scripture. And it's made all the more sad if we turn to John 17, where the Lord prays before his suffering. And central to his prayer is that his disciples will be united, not divided. Um, it's a a very arresting verse because the reality is Jesus of Nazareth divides people. Today we know that he polarizes people in terms of their view of who he is and how they respond to him. And the real challenge to my heart is let um, Jesus be the reason for our unity and let there be no division in our lives as a community of, of disciples in, in his church, in the church of, churches of God, that there be no division amongst us. That's the verse 43, a compelling and outstanding verse from the passage we'll read. The other is verse 46, which is much more positive. And it's spoken by the temple guard as they returned to the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders empty handed. They were commissioned to go and arrest Jesus. And when challenged as to where is he, their response was no one ever spoke the way this man does, and it's in contrast to uh, how the people were divided. Um, his word was spoken with power to the extent that um, people were just unable <laughs> to follow through on what they had originally intended. So, two uh, pretty special verses that. Um, maybe stand alone and are worthy of our reflection. One, very sad, but true. And the other, very compelling. And, and it really inspires us, inspires us to listen more to what this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, has said. Um, I've continued to enjoy the view of John's gospel from the perspective of John building his case For Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God, the one in whom by believing we may have life in his name. That's the verse we were pointed to right at the start. It's chapter 20 and verse 31. It's the reason for John writing his gospel. And as we move into chapters 6 and 7, it becomes apparent that central to John's message is his and his fellow apostles' conviction as to the true identity of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, every incident and every person that John brings to the stand is selected to confirm and underline that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's where we will be focused today on the identity of the Lord Jesus. It's a wonderful, wonderful topic. I'd like us to consider three challenges as we reflect on the second half of John chapter 7. The first is, Anyone exposed to the teaching and actions of Jesus of Nazareth must answer the question, what about you? Who do you believe he is? And when confronted with um, this person, his actions, his words, there is no room for fence-sitting. We have to make a decision on who we believe he is, first point. Second is appreciating who Jesus really is is truly life changing it was for the people of his day and it is for us the audience to which john presents his case so truly recognizing the right identity of the lord jesus is life changing and it leads us to our third point which is a question it's do i with john believe jesus of nazareth to be the christ the son of god and if i do where is the evidence of that belief in my life today if the second point is that recognition of his true identity is life-changing then how has my life and your life been changed by it um, so we'll read John chapter 7 verse 25 to the end but before we do just a little bit of context we're breaking in part way through the Feast of Tabernacles this is a major eight-day annual festival which any Jew worth a soap would take time off and venture to Jerusalem to join in the festivities. As David explained to us on Tuesday, despite pressure from his own siblings to attend the festival, Jesus' priority was to live in perfect alignment with God's timetable for events. He waited until he knew the time was right. He eventually travels up to Jerusalem but only appears publicly halfway through the week. And when he does appear publicly, he um, holds no punches he um, preaches very publicly. And his message to the Jewish leaders was that his teaching and his actions demonstrated that he was indeed from God. But they could not accept it because it exposed that they had become so slavishly and legalistically bound to the law of Moses. Um, And they prided themselves in it. And they prided themselves in it to the extent that they'd lost all connection with the God they were supposed to be serving. So it was a message that touched a raw nerve because they knew he was right, but were not willing to accept it because in so doing, it would expose their hypocrisy. So that's the context. Um, He's delivered this uh, very direct um, ministry in a public place, uh, very provocative. And so we break in to John 7 and 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do know him, you do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miracle, miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowds whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple gods to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him later were to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guard came back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. I want to, just as a reminder as to where John and the other disciples stood in relation to their understanding of Jesus' true identity, I just want to grab a verse from the previous chapter. We've obviously already been there, but it's chapter 6 and verse 67 and it says Jesus is speaking it says do you want to leave me do you want to leave too sorry i'll start again you do not want to leave too do you jesus asked the 12 simon peter answered him lord whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life we believe and know that you are the holy one of god so back to our uh, three-point challenge for today. The first one was anyone exposed to the teaching and action of Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, must answer the question, what about you? Who do you believe he is? And remember, there's no room for fence, fence sitting. This was the debate uh, that Jesus' teaching had triggered. And it seems that there were the rank and file, the people who were listening to him and Um, His ministry and and his challenge and teaching to them was um, provoking all kinds of questions and and thoughts. And one of the things they declared um, is one day the authorities were trying to kill him, the next he's openly preaching in in the Feast of Tabernacles. And they asked the question, have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? Just a, a little aside here that um, takes us back to where David brought us on Tuesday night in the first half of this chapter. Um, Yes, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders had resolved to kill Jesus. The the crowd was right, Um, but they had not been able to do so. And of course, one day they would, but that was not aligned with our sovereign God's timetable of events. And uh, similarly, we have two occasions here, verse 30 and 44, where they tried to cease him, but it says, but no one laid a hand on him. You know, it's interesting that not only was Jesus proactive in not stepping ahead of his father's timetable for events, and we get that from the fact he delayed his um, attendance at the Feast of Tabernacles, Tabernacles, but the father, too, was proactive. And, you know, I like to think of this um, statement that no one was able to lay a hand on him. It's like a hidden miracle. Um, and you get it um, frequently through the Bible, when, through the, the gospel accounts, when the people would have made him king or the people would have killed him. And somehow he just walked through them. And it's God um, directly preventing men from doing things their way. So all things had to be done in sync with the Father's timetables for events. And that was seen in the behavior of the Lord Jesus. And also, um, I believe, when his Father intervened as well. But back to uh, the challenge of the, um, the identity of the Lord Jesus, which was, occupying it seems everyone's thoughts and questions at, at this time and we hit something I've called the origin problem it says but he, he comes from Nazareth not Bethlehem and at first glance this seems like a genuine anomaly and if we jump to the last verse verse 52 when Nicodemus um, kind of puts his head above the parapet and says something that vaguely is supportive of the Lord Jesus wanting to give him at least an audience. And um, his peers set him a test. Go read the scriptures, they say, and you'll find that the prophet does not come, of, of, come out of Galilee. You know, one of the really important things to understand when we're considering the true identity of the Lord Jesus is it te- who he really is withstands the test of the closest closest scrutineers. So in a sense, the, the accusation was right or the statement was right that Jesus came from the wrong place. So he couldn't be um, who he said he was. But I, I love the idea of Nicodemus, the great um, student of Old Testament of God's word. He went away and he would do his research. And yes, he discover that they were right that Jesus, uh, the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. But he'd also do the study of Jesus and understand where was he born? And he'd find that actually these facts perfectly aligned. And um, so there was no anomaly and it was true. And it's appropriate for everyone who's concerned about the identity of the Lord Jesus to confront apparent anomalies. And I think it's a wonderful fact that all of science and all genuine research only ever confirms the teaching of scripture about the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth. How many times have we heard ignorant people say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions and, you know, science disproves that Jesus could be who who he said he was or the resurrection or whatever it might be. And I think part of of uh, understanding the truth of the identity of the Lord Jesus doesn't involve burying those difficult questions. It involves researching them objectively. And we come to the conclusion that the scripture, what the scriptures say about his identity is true. I love John's record of Peter's declaration. That's what we read in chapter six and verse 69. Peter says, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And here it is. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. That's a beautiful combination. Belief is faith and knowledge is fact. And don't we know in our own hearts that we have come to our trust in the true identity of the Lord Jesus. And it's a combination of faith and fact. Appreciating um, Jesus' true identity is indeed an exercise of faith but it is also supported by knowledge. Uh, And the knowledge is is facts and also knowledge that is born out of our own experience. And as we'll see in our next point, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's um, to reveal to us personally the truth of the identity of the Lord Jesus, something which we accept by faith, the faith that God has given to us, but something that is all also borne out by fact, and that's um, knowledge, it's facts, and it's borne out also by our own factual experience. So let's revisit the question, question one personally. Um, what do I believe and know about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth? Peter on behalf of his um, his peers says we believe and know that you are the holy one of god is that where we are too leads us to our second point about um, those who do appreciate who jesus really is their lives get changed as a consequence that was the case for the people of his day and it's a case for us too remembering that we're the audience that john is presenting his case to here in writing his gospel Jesus very, has a very public message and he delivers it on the greatest and final day of the feast. And it's a contrast to the beginning of the feast where his timing wasn't right as far as God's timetable was concerned. So he held back. And now we get um, a sense that in this most important Jewish festival of the year and on the most important day of, the Jewish, of this Jewish festival and in the most predominant place, in the temple courts, Jesus has um, captured the attention of everyone around him. And if we go to verse 37, he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And then John, and this is a fascinating statement because remember, John is writing his um, or presenting his case retrospectively. So he knows the conclusion of his case and knows what's happened since writing his gospel in his old age. So John delivers straight away the meaning of what the Lord Jesus was saying. And and he says, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So John, knowing the end from the beginning, now understood what Jesus had been talking about in this statement. The presence and work of the Holy Spirit was indeed the thing that would set apart true believers. You know, I, I don't know whether your uh, the statement of the Lord Jesus made rings a bell with you. It does for me. It takes us back to John chapter 4. And John is there using very, very similar. Well, it's not John. It's the Lord uses very similar words. John's recording them. Um, in his private interaction with the Samaritan woman. And we were reflecting, I think, in an earlier ministry that um, the Lord sometimes ministered very privately. He delivered miracles very privately. And sometimes when it was appropriate, he did things very, very publicly. And it's as though the Samaritan woman had her own private audience, and his his message for her was about a a fountain of water that could come within um, inviting her to come and drink from him and now he goes to the most public place and he's proclaiming with a loud voice the same message and it's key because the the message or the Recognition of who Jesus was, the core of this debate that was going on, changed people's lives. And we can imagine the Samaritan woman went away a different person as she recognized who Jesus was. And anyone um, at the time recognizing who Jesus was went away a different person. And uh, the difference was uh, a demonstration of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So our second point is clear. If we recognize the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth as the eternal son of God, the one by whom believing we receive life in his name, then it changes our lives. So it brings us to our third point and question. Looking at my own life and you looking at your lives and us looking at each other and encouraging each other and challenging each other is where is the evidence Of my belief in the true identity of the Lord Jesus today one of the things that the Lord Jesus said um, verse 38 whoever believes me whoever believes in me as the scripture has said streams of living water will flow from within him so Jesus himself is pointing his audience back to an Old Testament scripture that prophesies this truth that Jesus is preaching Um, interestingly uh, it's not I don't think at least that it's very explicit by what Jesus said which verse he was referring to which Old Testament verse he was referring to but my uh, maybe there are well I'm sure there are many verses that he could have been referring to that pointed to the the coming of the Holy Spirit that was his theme here but my NIV study Bible points me to Isaiah 58 verse 11 And I just want to, as we draw our thoughts to a a conclusion, I want us to share Isaiah 58, verse 11. It's a very special verse in a very special chapter. Isaiah 58 appeals to me as an essay on fasting. Isn't that interesting? Um, Fasting is one of those topics that is, uh, it appears a lot in Scripture, even in the New Testament, and we're encouraged to do it. And maybe we should uh, take time at some point to look back, maybe privately, in, into Isaiah 58 and consider that essay on fasting. But it has an application for today. And it's in the context of what happens when our thirst or appetite for the word of God is displaced by, sorry, our, our thirst or appetite for the world is displaced by a thirst for the water from the well that is Jesus of Nazareth. Um, If we accept Jesus is the Son of God and we believe on him and have life in his name, then Isaiah 58 teaches what difference it makes because we have the Holy Spirit. So let's turn to Isaiah 58 and 11. And there are five amazing, encouraging but challenging points that emerge. Someone who has the Holy Spirit in them displays these wonderful characteristics or experiences these wonderful things in their life. So Isaiah 58 verse 11, The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land, and he will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And here's here's the challenge to my own heart. How does, to what extent does Isaiah fifty-eight and eleven describe my life in the COVID nineteen lockdown? Um, where are my thoughts? Um, what is my anxiety level? Um, what is my, um, where is my, where does my dependence lie? The first point. It says, the Lord will guide you always, and someone who has the Holy Spirit in them um, you know it takes us to the upper room and the lord's promise of the Holy Spirit, and He will guide you in in truth in all of god's truth, and you know how confident are we as to the direction we're going, even when the world around us is struggling to know what to do next and where to go and how to how to play what's going on around us. Those of us who have understood the identity of the Lord Jesus and accepted him as our saviour and therefore have the Holy Spirit will have that real sense of direction. Second point, he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. We're in a world that is um, never satisfied, it seems, Um, because the world will, will never provide things that satisfy the may be satisfied temporarily, um, but that's not the character of a disciple of the Lord Jesus, someone who understands his identity and has the Holy Spirit. There's a deep sense of satisfaction, even when stuff going around us is, um, is not what we would like. And the third point, he will strengthen your frame. That's a curious expression. Um, one of the things that's written about Hannah after she'd prayed is she was no longer downcast and i can just imagine the lady distraught with her problems uh, going you know and her posture was was downcast her frame um said it all her body language said it all and uh, then when she prayed it said she was no longer downcast and i think that's a, a consequence thinking about our own experience it's a consequence of the holy spirit within us we he will strengthen your frame I don't know, I'm not looking at the faces on view at the moment because uh, I'm looking at my notes, so I can't see your faces, but are we downcast or are we strong in, um, despite what's going on around us? And having that resilience, that strength, that um, kind of sturdy frame about us is a demonstration of our confidence and the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. You will be like a well-watered garden. Um, that speaks of fruitfulness doesn't it and uh, with the Holy Spirit in our lives because we recognize and have accepted who Jesus is then our lives will be fruitful and of course you know what is the fruit well we can read all about that um, in Galatians 5 it's the fruit of the Spirit it's the character of the Lord being demonstrated through our behavior through our relationships with each other, through our devotion to him. Um, So those spiritual fruit are characteristic of those who have the Holy Spirit with them. And then finally, like a spring whose waters never fail. There is an amazing stability and continuity as we live lives dependent, totally dependent, especially under today's circumstances, on the ever-present Holy Spirit with us. And it's as though uh, our confidence in Him and our delight in God's Word and our love to share with each other and to pray together and to read together uh, will never be exhausted. It's just something we always delight to do. Back to our saddest verse in the Bible they were divided by Him. His prayer and our aspiration is that we will be united by Him, united in the conviction of His identity as the Christ, the Son of God, the one in whom by believing we may have eternal life. I don't know about you, but I'm convinced so far, uh, and we're only halfway through John's testimony, but I'm convinced. It kind of makes you feel, if I hadn't believed in the first place already, then I certainly would now. His, His testimony is compelling, and it's a celebration of the Holy Spirit within us that speaks to the reality of Jesus' true identity. Thank you.